I haven't even been down to Easter camp and I'm croaky. <laughs> you know, I've, over the years, I, I've been asked many, many times, how do I know what to preach each week? And uh, in all honesty, it was one of my greatest fears as a newly appointed pastor. And that hasn't changed. <laughs> but I'm learning. Even after all the years that Suzanne and I have been leading the church, I'm learning to listen to the Holy Spirit all the time, and I'm always asking God. And over recent weeks, I have been quite profoundly prompted to look back over the messages that have come on our Sunday mornings for about the last five weeks. And as I've done that, I've seen, uh, uh, I, I think it's, uh, well, I think, I conclude it's a God-inspired thread that has gone through all the messages. Five weeks ago, we had our one service, and it was the first of a two-part series about the heart of worship, and we were asked um, by Rebecca, what are we filling our hearts with? Three weeks ago, Amber preached, and she preached and she challenged us not to just be in church, but to be in Christ. Last week, as we celebrated Easter on, and on Sunday, I challenged us, me included, what will we do with what we remember? Because, you know, Jesus isn't in the grave anymore. He's not on the cross anymore. He's seated at the right hand of our Father God in heaven as a court, in accordance with the Word of God. But what will we do with what we remember? And here is what I believe that I, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit was just prompting me to go back and read through and look at my notes and the notes that I take. I, look, I really encourage you to take notes during the messages. Because you never know, the Holy Spirit might just want to touch you about something that you've heard and you can go back over your notes. But this is what I was prompted, that for us to be strong in Christ and not just to live a nostalgic faith. You know, back in the day. I remember when. But for us to be strong in Christ, we need to be filling our hearts intentionally in faith that is deeply personal and deeply authentic. A come what may, we will remain in Christ type of faith. And so the title of this message is this. Do it, grow it. Genuine, authentic faith. If there is a way that the enemy, the devil, the, the enemy of our lives, the enemy of our soul is going to erode and strip away our strength and strip away the certainty that we can have in our faith, you can be sure he is going to try it. You know, Jesus gave us this warning, but also a, an incredible promised hope in one amazing verse in the Bible. If you've been in church any length of time, you're going to recognize this immediately. This is John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and this is what he says. The thief, he's referring to the devil, the thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But my purpose, speaking of himself, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. In the New King James, it's says uh, life and life more and that more abundantly the enemy's target is the certainty of your faith and this is why as a church we have got this absolute <laughs> desire to see our children right from sparks grow in a personal faith so by the time they, they age out and graduate out of oxygen out of our youth group and they go to university 18, at 18 
They are so certain in their faith. If there is one thing, and I find this fascinating. You know, every university in the world was started by Christians. But if there is one place in the world now that will challenge faith and intentionally try and destroy Christian faith, it's universities. And if there's one thing that is going to happen to our teenagers when they get to university, they are going to be challenged on the certainty of their faith. Even more than we do as adults in the workplace. And the enemy is going to target that faith and he will attack it and attack it and attack it in in a pursuit to steal, to kill and to destroy. And he doesn't just attack it intellectually. He will attack us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He will challenge our ethics. He will challenge everything. If we want to grow strong, then we need to turn to the one who knows us perfectly. And you know what? There's only one person who knows us perfectly. And that is our creator. Come with me to Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. That's a little bit challenging, isn't it? You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. But we shouldn't be freaked out by that. Let's jump to verse 23 of the same Psalm 139. This is David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out everything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That, those two verses there, I don't, know, I don't know if there is a better systems check that we can pray. I want you to take note of something this morning. If we are going to grow a genuinely authentic faith, there is a cost. There is a cost to grow faith, true faith strength in our lives. And you know what? We must be prepared to meet that cost for the best outcome. I mean, how many, of us, how many of us would retain a builder that's going to build you a brand new house and go, I'm going to do it really cheap because I found this old wood down the back of a mate's farm. It's been sitting under the macrocarpus for about 20 years. It's really dry and it's going to be fantastic. And you pick it up and it's full of borer, full of holes. Are we going to retain him as a builder? If we want a brand new house, we want the best materials that we can afford. You know what? Why, why, why should we treat our faith any differently? Why should we treat our life any differently? Uh, Vic Johnson is an entrepreneur and an author that I've, I, uh, for a number of, well, not recently, but years ago, I used to read his stuff quite regularly. And this is a quote from some of the stuff I read from, of his writings. A human, uh, as human beings, we will pay a lot more for what we want than what we need. And I'm not to go into the difference between men and women when it comes to shopping. But in general, we'll pay a lot more for what we want than actually what we need, eh? Strong, active faith does not happen after a singular event. We don't grow strong in our faith after coming to church once or going to youth group once or reading the Bible once. It doesn't happen by distance. 
and it doesn't happen by remote. And this is not to say anyone who's joining us online, you've got it wrong. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. You've been intentional and you've logged in. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. But you know what? Just like natural strength requires discipline and exercise from us, so too does strong faith take personal commitment. It takes personal discipline. And guess what? It also takes maintenance. In the Old Testament, oh man, has anyone ever ever gone, you know what? I think I I was born in the wrong time period. Has anyone ever thought that? If you're a lady and you think you should have been born 200 years ago, could I encourage you to think again? Do you really want to deliver a baby 200 years ago? (laughs) No, no, no. But you know what? In the Old Testament, there was an incredibly strict code. It was called the law. In fact, there were hundreds of laws, and often the punishment for breaking a law was death. But you know what was interesting? Under that law of the Old Testament, each law was not individually exclusive. If you broke one, you were guilty of breaking them all. Generally, with the punishment of death. The purpose of the law in the Old Testament was to show that we actually cannot live righteous lives apart from or without God. Because there's only one who can make us righteous, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, over the years, I've encountered people trying to to accomplish strength and righteousness of their faith out of their own lives, out of their own being. And yet when when they realize that they've been given the freedom to choose by God, they fail in all sorts of areas in their lives. And see, here's here's one of the crazy things that I've wrestled with Many, many, many times. God is perfect and he knows all things. And he is sovereign and he is righteous and is holy. And he knows what requires is required for us to, to get to heaven. Why don't he just fix it and take us? <laughs> Wouldn't that be so much easier? But see, here's the thing. God in the Bible is described as perfect love. And for love to be perfect, he, love must allow the freedom of choice. If God didn't allow us to, to, if God didn't let us exercise our will, then He's not a perfect God. He's just a benevolent dictator. And so God, who is perfect, gives us the freedom to choose. He sent His Son to die on the cross and said, It is through His death that you can be made whole and come to heaven. And then He steps back and He goes, Ball's in your court. is everything they say. For those online, someone's cell phone just went off. <laughs> you better answer it. It might be God wanting to give me some instructions. <laughs> but you know, here's, here's the conclusion that I've come to when in, in the wrestle of, that people have to try and do things apart from God, but I mean, I've even met Christians who have tried to live according to the law and it fails every time. See, here's a conclusion I've come to. When we are required to do something by the law, 
it almost mentally re removes the requirement of personal responsibility. Let me just explain this. I am required to do this by the law. I didn't choose to do it. Therefore, if I get punished or if I get if someone tries to hold me accountable, then there is no need for me to regret or to have any conscious thought about this because I was required to do it. I didn't choose to do it. But you see, God is not a dictator. He gives us will, a will, and he asks us to make a choice. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, I'll just paraphrase it. It says, this is what God says, be hot or cold, not lukewarm. What a crazy choice God gives us. You can choose me or you, 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 you don't. Ball's in your court. Just don't sit on the fence. Joshua, the famous challenge that he gave to the Israelites, choose this day whom you will serve. In actual fact, if you read that right through, it says, if, if God be the God of the Amorites, that the people that used to live in this land, if they didn't then choose him. Or of this one, or this one. But choose today, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Actually, you know what? As we dig into the scriptures, it gets even more personal. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, one of the most terrifying passages of scriptures a believer can read. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out devils in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What the heck? How can that be? How, how can that be? Jesus is God. He's, he knows everything. I mean, in, in Psalm 139, you have searched me and you know me. In Jeremiah 1, chapter 5, verse 5, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Huh? Is God lying? I mean, these are some of the things that cause people to be confused. But you know what we've got to do is we've got to dig a bit deeper. When Jesus says, I never knew you, the Greek translation uses a word that's, it's, it's, I think this is the correct pronunciation, gnosko. And when we unpack this declaration, a very, very clear picture forms. When Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew, this is what he was saying. Depart from me, I was never allowed to know you. Depart from me, I was not aware of you. Depart from me, I did not feel you. Depart from me, I did not perceive you. I didn't see you, I didn't recognize you. Depart from me, I could never be sure of you. Depart from me, for I was never resolved to you. You never made up your mind. <laughs> and then number seven, the seven, the last one was, depart from me, I could never speak with you. Trying to build strength and certainty through acts of religiosity. What is that? That's ritual over relationship. A ritual without relationship. That's just going through the motions. You know what? This is how, and I, 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 even before I became a pastor, I, I saw this time and time again. 
This is how people grow weary and become disillusioned with faith. Now, I'm not talking just Christian faith, but faith in general, when it's all about religious acts as opposed to personal connection and relationship. People grow weary and disillusioned. In other words, they just do it, they just don't grow it. And of all of the different faiths that I've studied, and I have studied a few, there is only one faith where the centre person of that faith actually actively pursues a one-on-one relationship with each believer, with each follower, and that is the God of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. You know, unless our relationship with God is genuine, it's authentic, it's heart level, then we run the risk of hearing that very statement that Jesus declared to the disciples. This is really encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe this morning you're going, whoa, 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 what the heck? What do I, where do I start? What do I do? If, if you've been in this church any length of time, you'll have, you'll have heard me say, say this. Don't just get into the word, but let the word get into you. I want to quote Amber again from three weeks ago. She made this statement as she was teaching us and encouraging us not to just be in church, but to be in Christ. And this is what she said. Without Christ in you, scriptures are just nice proverbs and platitudes. They're just a really nice thing to quote at a motivational talk. George Mueller was a British uh, philanthropist and an evangelist in the 1800s. He was famous for uh, taking orphans and street kids off the street and building orphanages and teaching them and, and educating them. He was famous for having absolutely no food in his orphanage and so he would get all the kids together and pray and as they're praying at the door and a wagon would show up full of bread and milk. Famous for it. But this is what he says about the word of God. It is a common temptation of Satan to make us give up the reading of the word and prayer when our enjoyment is gone. As if it were of no use to read the scriptures when we do not enjoy them. The truth is that in order to enjoy the word, we ought to continue to read it. And to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. The less we read the word of God, the less we desire to read it. The less we pray, the less we desire to pray. Let me just bring this a little bit closer to home. The less we hang out with friends, the less we want to. It's, it's, it, it takes personal engagement and it takes continuity you know what, we cannot be, we cannot be Christians who do not read our Bibles or pray. We just can't. We cannot be so distracted by work, life or leisure that we run the risk of being lulled into taking our cues from an increasingly liberal culture who no longer have a biblical worldview. Our worldview shapes the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual dimensions of our lives. What is a biblical worldview? I, I looked this up because I, I didn't, wasn't able to myself really form it in words. And I went to the Focus on the Family uh, website. And this is their description of what a biblical worldview is. A biblical worldview is based on the infallible word of God. 
When you believe the Bible is entirely true, then you allow it to be the foundation of everything you say and do. I have, I have encountered... I have encountered people who say they are Christian believers who are questioning the word of God. They're questioning its authenticity. They're questioning its validity. And when I ask them, how do they know and how often they read it? They, you know, they don't. They just don't. And I think, well, heck, how can you question it if you don't even read it? Oh, well, this person said this and this person said this and this person. What we do is we give our lives over to the latest commentator. Jesus warned us that this was going to happen. Jesus warned us that in the last days, the devil, appearing as an angel of light, with clever-sounding arguments, would try to deceive even the most committed believer. Matthew 24, verse 12 says this, but, in, but because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. John Cooper, he's the lead singer out of a Christian band called Skillet. Here's a quote from him. It's time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling. Let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths. But rather, let us hold on even tighter to the anchor of the living word of God. When I was uh, brand new and still trying to find the tear tab on the cling wrap, when I was just recently, you know, newly appointed as a pastor, at my ordination, I was issued a challenge. And that challenge comes directly out of the Word of God. And the, there is the, this is what you should do at the beginning, at the end, and this is why you should do it in the middle. Let me read the challenge that I received. And actually the challenge that I issued to Suzanne when she was ordained, because at that time I was serving on the national leadership team and ordinations were part of my responsibility. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 2 through 5 says this, Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Thanks, God. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. You know, I've found in my own personal life that when I am facing or I am faced with questions about morals, when I'm faced with questions about ethics, when I'm faced with the challenge of obedience or honour, you know, real life stuff, the stuff that you face every single day. It's the Bible that has been my bedrock and my confirming direction. I'm, I'm left with two questions. As, 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 a, as a pastor, as a shepherd... As I guess a, you know, a, a father um, of, of younger people in the faith, I'm left with these two questions when I encounter people who say that they are believers but they don't read the Bible and they don't pray. The first question is this 
Why? Do you not know how? Do you not know where to start? Is there, some, is there something that's happened in your life that has caused you to shun the word of God or has caused you to give up praying? Is it disappointed? Why? If we can find the why, then we can find a direction. And the second question I'm left with is this. How can I help? I, as a young man, was required to read my Bible every single day by my dad. And um, I, I, literally, I literally account to my dad now my love of the Word of God as an adult. <laughs> as a kid, I wasn't so, so enthused about it. I mean, in actual fact, I was so terrified that if I hadn't read my Bible every, you know, before I went to bed, I couldn't, literally couldn't go to sleep. I was like, I, was like, I need to read my Bible because I know Dad's going to ask me in the morning, what did you read, son? I, go, I have no idea. I know I read something, but I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, literally, I literally account my love for the Word of God to my dad, who, who just, when I didn't have a clue, he knew that it was going to be so impeccably important in my life. He was like, he has to learn. He has to learn. And now, for the last, oh, I don't know how many years, but I, I literally read the, the Bible from cover to cover every year. And I use the Vision Bible app. Uh, there are numerous um, reading plans in there. And I, I won't get into that, but if I can answer question two, how can I help? If, if I can help anyone, man, you know me, I'm up for a coffee. Let's get together. Let's talk about how we do this. Let's talk about how we grow this. Reading the Bible and praying are more powerful than we can imagine. 1 Timothy 3, sorry, 2 Timothy 3 verse says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There is no greater manual for life than the Bible. The American Center for Bible Engagement did this massive survey. Um, and the, the, it was around reading the Bible. And they, they surveyed, they questioned 40,000 people in the United States aged between eight, eight years old and 80 years old. And what the survey discovered was eye-opening. And you can see the first part of it up on the screen up here. Reading the Bible once a week made vitally, uh, virtually no difference in their Christian faith. Reading it twice a week, negligible difference. Reading three times a week, there was some difference in their life. But reading the Bible four times a week, there was a dramatic difference. And the, the, I, I'm going to give you the stats in a second. But it said the difference in people's lives from once, twice, or three times a week, when they got to four times a week, the difference didn't just shift. It spiked dramatically. And here is some of the Statistics of some of the results of this survey of 40,000 people. At reading their Bible four times or more a week, loneliness dropped by 30%. Anger dropped by 32%. Bitterness in relationships and marriage dropped by 40%. Alcoholism dropped by 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped by 60%. Viewing pornography dropped by 61%. Sharing faith increased by 200%. Discipling others and being involved in the lives of other believers increased by 
I want to give you a warning right now. Reading the Bible every single day is dangerous. It will change your life. President Ronald Reagan was quoted as the President of the United States of America within the covers of one single book, the Bible, are all the answers to all the problems that face us today. If only we would read and believe. Worship team, please, would you come? A life that is in Christ and a heart that is being filled with God's word. Like I said right near the beginning, there's a cost to this. It will stretch you. It will stretch you. I mean, it will stretch you just simply in the, oh my goodness, Leviticus chapter 6. <laughs> Numbers. <laughs> there are some books in the Old Testament that are hard work to read. There are some books in the Old Testament that are really just challenging and disappointing time after time after time to read. Not disappointing for me, but it left me questioning and challenged me in my own faith. I mean, two of the greatest, two of the greatest prophets, prophets, prophets in the Old Testament were known to be godly. You know, like absolutely, the, the nation of Israel listened to them because they heard from God, and yet their own sons turned their back on God. I tell you what, as a dad, that challenges the fat out of me. And it's not just my, my sons now, it's also my grandchildren as well. I need to see them know the word of God. I need to see them to know Jesus like I've known Jesus. I'm just not going to leave it just up to my, my sons and their wives. It's my, I'm a granddad. Hmm. Don't mess with granddad. We can't reach for or maintain an authentic, genuine faith of Christ if we choose mediocrity. Don't settle for mediocre. You know what? You know what happens when we settle for mediocre? It's easy to blame other people. It's easy to blame circumstances. It's easy to blame life. Guess what? If you're stuck in mediocrity, it's because you've made a choice. Mediocrity is a choice. Doing nothing is a choice. You can't, we can't just have a Sunday habit. I only come to church on Sunday and that's it. That's not going to grow your faith. That's just going to wear you out. You'll find something that's more interesting, something that feeds your soul quicker and easier. I tell you what, we live in paradise. Within an hour's drive of here, you can be anywhere. You can be hunting, you can be fishing in a river, you can be deep sea fishing, you can be water skiing, jet skiing, boating, tramping, climbing mountains, snow skiing, flying. Within an hour's drive of here, you can do anything you want. That's a pretty big distraction. But I'll tell you what, it becomes very attractive. Very attractive when you're bored with church. Or bored with God. And why do we become bored with God? Because we are going through religion and not relationship. We're not reading our Bible and we're not praying. To have a personal relationship with God that leads to an exciting relationship that builds strength, that builds hope, that builds certainty into our life, we have to read the Bible. We have to pray. Guys, 
We've got to do it to grow it. We've got to do it to grow 